Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. In today's episode, I'm joined by Wayne Clancy, a business leader and entrepreneur who has focused his work on enabling human possibilities. He's worked with private and public sector organizations with the mandate to inspire positive change through social collaboration. He's with us today to share his experience in sectors as diverse as healthcare, municipalities, and business, to explore how their focus on wellness and resilience can inform K-12 and post-secondary practices. everyone. Welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook and uh, thrilled to have you here and welcome my very great guest, Wayne Clancy. Wayne, hi and welcome to the show. Hello, Jennifer. It's so nice to be here. Wayne, I've had the opportunity to hear a little bit about the work that you're doing. So one of the things that I've been really fascinated about in the last little while is the connection between business and education and trying to bring those two entities together. Our kids in our education system, of course, go out into the world of work and further learning and into their communities. And where we can bring business and education together, there's just such incredible potential. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And education doesn't stop at the educational system. Education is a lifelong activity. And the impact and the interaction between them is incredibly powerful. You're right. Because you have community and you have businesses and you've got different groups and community groups within and the connectivity of them all is so critical, but we do have silos where we separate them quite often. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation with you about that. Well, here's an opportunity to bring those entities together, Wayne. Thanks for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. When I learned about your work, you are doing work that kind of spans across a couple of different spectrums. You are very interested in humanity and the humanities and how humans interact. And you're very interested in measurement, and you have a company that actually has created a unique algorithm that is very aligned with this concept of diversity in human thinking. I was fascinated, and I'm sure the group will be. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to. Okay. Our journey is a long one, as, as long as we're open to learning from it. So I'll share a, a quick version of the story with you, just so you kind of have an idea on where we landed and how we ended up with this algorithm because humans are humans and we think a certain way and we make decisions a certain way but as a society we've kind of siloed away from that sometimes and not necessarily considered and, and had the one-size-fits-all approach to things when there's uniqueness in all of us and, and and that's why we can celebrate both components of it so i'll share a bit of the story with you and um just sort of how we got to where we are that unique way of measurement, and then we can kind of lead into how the impact would be from an educational perspective, for sure. Wonderful, Wayne. Thank you. It started off when I was younger. I played guitar, and it was the sort of singer-songwriter era. And my buddy had this great voice, and the two of us played guitar and sang. And, and at school, we, we played at the different functions and everything else went with it. I was given one of the most incredible gifts by one of my professors. And we were literally at the pub at the school, and um, he said, and he shared the art of observation right? And it was so simple. It was crazy interesting because, and essentially it was observe, ask questions, don't judge. And it was that triad that sat with me and I wasn't a big party or anything. So 
as we went across North America or across Canada, we saw subtle differences between Toronto and Calgary and Edmonton and Halifax and Vancouver and things. But once we hit the States, we were fascinated with it. We, with like every 25 US miles or every 40 kilometers or whatever, there's a different culture and a different way of people thinking. And it was fascinating to me because I would observe this wherever we went. When I came back, I got a job in the private sector and it was with a, a logistics company. And I was sitting in the boardroom one day with the leadership group and they had just done a customer satisfaction study. And they were way above all the competitors. They were great. And I checked it out and it was all done the proper way and everything else. But their market share was slipping and they were failing all over the place, right? They couldn't figure out why this was. And sometimes you can see things when you're not stuck in the mud, as I like to say. I asked them, I said, well, how important is this to the customers? And everybody looked around at each other. They'd never asked the question. I literally went away that night and total quality management was emerging and Deming had done his work with the Japanese car manufacturing and things. And so I, I went out and I kind of created a simple total quality management system for humans where I took in certain aspects and I asked two questions. One was, how important is this to you? And the second one is, how well is it working? Or what's your level of satisfaction? And, and then I created a, a simple measurement that measures the difference, and I called it the expectation gap index, right? So if it's really important and it's working well, it's 100, that's good. And if it's really important, it's not working that well, it could be 60, 65% of expectation because people think in terms of 100. But the unique part about it is that if it's really not important, but it's working really well, it could be 130 or 140% of expectation. And so we got involved in a lot of different areas and created a whole modeling system. And we were involved in wellness, well-being very early on with a lot of different organizations across North America. And then we were able to predict innovation and agility and these types of outcomes, leadership alignment. And we applied them to communities. And you, I've created something called the City Hierarchy of Needs, which you, we, we've got registered and trademarked, which uses Maslow's hierarchy, but it applies it to a community environment. And we've applied our technology and our algorithms to getting communities working better together. And I regularly speak in the States and help Democrats and Republicans understand that they actually have 95 things in common and only five differences, rather than the complete difference that a lot of the conditioning is doing for them. So that's where we've kind of landed on it and all the different products and applications. And we've applied it to so many different areas and sustainability and partnered with different groups in those different areas. So it's been really a fascinating ride that way. Wayne, and that's exactly why I wanted to share you and, and your thinking and yeah. your work with the education sector, because so many of the things that you talk about are the things that we are very focused now on education. You talk about the idea of wellness. You talk about the idea of leadership. You talk about the idea of culture. It sounds like you were almost ahead of the game. The companies weren't really talking about that yet. And I think in education, intuitively, we always knew that all those pieces were important. And it's really risen to the front pre-pandemic and as well as coming out of the pandemic, of how important that whole idea of well-being and learning is. And it's, I think it'll be a great conversation for the participants today. So let's dive in a little bit about the, the business case for humanity and well-being. You don't have to look very far in the world today where the case for humanity is really obvious. We've got wars, we've got huge political differences, we've got climate change issues. There's just such an obvious need for humanity. What's the business case for humanity? 
That's a, that's a great question. And, and just to put a final quick sentence on your one of your points you made there, we have a saying, it, there's nothing more frustrating than a great idea whose time has almost come. <laughs> I think many of us in education would agree with that. Absolutely. And it's we've been seeing this for a long time. Now it seems that there's this open and adoption of ideations to it. And we're finding people are very open to new ideas now, far more than they have been historically. So we're excited about kind of where that whole thing's going. So um, I'll share a little bit about how we landed on the humanity side. So in all the different measurement areas that, that we've worked with, wellness and well-being was a huge component of it. And we worked with Alberta Health. We worked with different nursing associations across North America, with Heart Stroke Foundation, Mood Disorders Association, many different groups in that area. And we were measuring wellness, well-being, and, and resilience in a number of different areas. And, you know, they'd be a part of our assessment where we'd understand with people. And, and humans are kind of interesting in, in many ways. But we're, we could be very resilient. And we've worked with organizations where the wellness scores have been low and they're still making money. And I've said to them, if you don't deal with this 12 to 18 months from now, you will not be getting the financial outcomes you're looking at. And we've applied it in educational environments. They weren't getting the educational environment or the training or wherever it happened to be. You will not have that because humans can continue for a while before they completely burn out, right? So it's a leading indicator in many ways. So we, we measured that. And when we saw that 100% at the time when I would warn people and they did not act on it because we get leadership groups sometimes that um, are more about the financial outcomes, unfortunately, than the human outcomes, they would ignore that. And then they would have very significant financial problems how they deliver on things that came their way. Classic canary in the coal mine, that if they don't deal with it at some point in time, it's going to hit them, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Then we talk about resilience. There's a sense of coherence, there's agility, hardiness, efficacy, learned resourcefulness, stability, all that kind of stuff. And these are all things, but we've simplified it. So it's really easy to understand what it is. Arizona State University, and, and I don't know if you know about their reputation, but their ranked most innovative university in the United States was Stanford number two, MIT number three. And they identified that they were turning out students who were less socially responsible than the ones they were getting. This was a number of years ago. And they had heard about our empathy and well-being research, and we ended up doing a project with them. And it was really fascinating what came out of it because of this conditioning that was going on when students, when they entered into, because they're still at an area where they can be conditioned to think certain ways because they're still younger and developing a lot of those systematic ways of thinking. And we did the project and everything, and there was a lot of really interesting stuff that came out of it. But then I was introduced to the Dean of Humanities there, and I went to see him and visit him. And ASU is the big, beautiful U.S. university. And I went to see him. He's in the basement of a building, literally. And, uh, you know, I'm 6'3", so I'm pretty tall anyway. But I literally kind of ducked and I went down and I sat down with him and I'm talking about it. And he's telling me about this Project Humanities, which is making the world a better place. And incredible vision and desire to make things work really well. And I said, Neil, this Dr. Neil, this is such an important project. Why are you in the basement? I love having frank conversations. And he says, well, because you can't measure humanity. It's only the disciplines you can measure that get funding. So because I've been working with complex human relationships for so many years, I literally left there. I went back, I looked at Aristotle, Socrates, uh, my buddy John King, the, the great author in, in the culture side, and, and I talked to other thought leaders, did all this research, and I isolated 14 constructs of humanity, and essentially it's how we treat each other. And I looked at that, 
And I said, this is the missing piece in the well-being and wellness components, right? Because, and then well-being and wellness, we, we look at a lot of different areas that are pretty critical and, and uh, you know, your, your physical and emotional well-being and your thinking and all that good stuff. And then I added the humanity one, which is the interaction we have with others around us. And we brought that in as the stabilizing component to that. And we started to go out and measure it in, within organizations. And we modernized the language, so it wasn't weird and it was acceptable kind of everywhere as you went, uh, because people think of humanity as being this weird thing. And a lot of leadership groups don't want to adopt or, or embrace some of it. But we were able to create hard, solid measurements out of it. And it was amazing. 100% of the organizations that had high humanity scores were also making more money. And I'm on a mission now to help everyone understand the business case for humanity. We actually adapt, work better together, create greater collaborative environments, listen more, observe more. All the different elements that have been a part of this over the years will also make more money as well. So we could kind of meet both sides of that. And I think there's a huge opportunity to share that kind of thinking in our other institutional areas, such as education and things as well, because our business systems are still running on hierarchical systems that were military-based, developed in the 50s after the Second World War. Report here, and one day you'll have my job, and shut up and listen, and, and that hierarchical approach, which you need in the military because lives are at stake. But in our business world, in our communities and things, we don't necessarily need that type of hierarchy because ideation needs to be built as a collaborative group. And that's where sort of all of this has come together in such an interesting way, because we, you know, we've got about 15,000 constructs that we've actually created that measure all of these different things and the human side of it. So it's, it's been a fascinating run. Wayne, that's exactly why I wanted you to be sharing your thinking, because you know, in education, we sometimes have a tough road going out and talking to parents, to policymakers, talking about the need for there to be a balance between the focus on student achievement and the focus on student well-being. And what you're saying is that that was a tough go in business as well, that it was hard to convince at the beginning business leaders that it wasn't just the financial bottom line, that in order to continue to not only have a financial, a positive financial bottom line, but actually have a sustainable one, you really had to be investing in the wellness, the well-being, the resilience, the whole cultural part, the human factors. And that's where I think we're finally at a parallel where it's really positive for parents to hear that businesses are thinking about this and that when their children leave our K-12 systems, they potentially go on to post-secondary or directly into the workplace, that workplaces are actually thinking about that as well. When did you first notice that shift in businesses from moving away from strictly looking at the financial bottom line to really starting to think about culture, well-being, resilience? When did that shift start to happen? There's two interesting answers to that. There's when did this start to happen and how deeply integrated is it? Because it did start quite a few years ago. There were some really leading thinking companies that started to adapt that who were to be very successful in some of those components. Now it's generally recognized as something that's very important, but I think the major factor is it's not understood on how to do that. Not a lot of people push back on the fact that, yeah, we need well-being and we need employees that are functional both physically and emotionally and mentally, or teachers that are functional and, and students who are, and parents who are for that matter, right? Because we've got a number of different groups that are coming together that need to be aligned around certain outcomes that have to happen to it. So 
it's now something that is there, is being recognized, is being discussed. But because it's very difficult to measure in an effective way, in an ongoing way that is simple, is where uh, I think a big part of the challenge is because we're society, especially in our institutional sides, and we measure everything, right? I mean, being able to measure some of these complex relationships now will allow us to make some significant changes. So when did it happen? Quite a few years ago, it was recognized that we needed to do it. But I think at a point now where there's open area for adoption. Wonderful. I like the framing of that open area, open minds towards adoption. And I think we're at the same place in education, actually. You know, you brought up a really interesting challenge in education, and obviously it is in business as well. The whole concept of measuring well-being, measuring resilience, measuring culture. And in education, obviously the OECD does PISA international assessments that were very typically on academics reading and mathematics and science. And there was a push towards, well, wait a second, educating a child and having a child involved in learning goes far beyond those simple measures. And so there was a push towards, what about creativity? What about the ability to problem solve? What about social emotional skills? And so OECD, to their credit, has shifted into more of a broad-based, and Andrea Schleicher talks very profoundly about the research that's showing that when those two things are put together and not separated, the children are the winners. And we as educators are um, incentivized to do the great work that we've always known that should be happening in our schools. So it's interesting to see that you've gone down the pathway. And of course, in education, we're very nervous, and understandably so, about the idea of trying to attach numbers to what we've traditionally done with measuring academic performance to trying to describe where a child is in developing their sense of well-being, their sense of resilience, their social-emotional skills that will help them thrive in, in, in later life. Tell us a little bit more about the framework that you're using when you present it to leaders in business organizations. From an educational perspective, we've got hierarchy there, very similar to what we do in business. And it depends on kind of where the students are versus where the employees are and things along those lines, right? And the ability to, to kind of quantify and recognize things. And again, it's getting people engaged in the process where that's occurring, right? And it, a lot of it depends on where they are within the environment and being able to recognize that and also break some of the stigma of our traditional way of doing things. And I think organizationally, it's engaging people in the process by understanding how they prioritize things is the critical factor because it is different in different areas and different for different groups and different within different environments. And it's so important that we recognize the uniqueness of different environments and that people feel that as if they're a part of it or they have that opportunity. And we have certain words that trigger things or don't, right? You know, we'll ask a question, well, how are we going to fix that? And everybody goes, I don't know. And then, you know, Min Ambassador, uh, he says, well, reframe your question. And I said, well, what was that? He says, how might we do that? And it's amazing how people start to answer things differently because now we open up to new opportunities. And that's the important part of being able to use the data in a way that makes it real for people, shall we say, in the different areas. And that's how you can adopt and bring in organizations. 
I think that's such a great point. And I love what you're talking about, really changing the way that you frame the questions. Because when we think of student achievement data, we always tried to push that the numbers are just a good opportunity to have a discussion and to really ask questions. The, the data is not providing the answers. It's actually providing an opportunity to be asking questions, to say, what do we know? What do we not know? Where do we need to go from here? And I think as we move into measuring well-being and social-emotional skills and resilience, et cetera, it's really about the questions. What might we do about this data? What might we do to open up a discussion where we really talk about and place an emphasis and importance on well-being in our organizations? I think that's a great way of framing things. Let's shift over more directly into implications for education. And I thought it was really interesting, your concept of cognitive conditioning and how it relates to young people and making sure that we're keeping that openness. So tell us a little bit more about that, Wayne. It's actually a fairly simple concept. And, and it's kind of funny, the one, it's a lot of the aha ones are that way. And when we think about humans, we do develop our way of thinking based upon conditioning that we've had. You know, when I use the analogy, a, a couple of computer programmers, they can program a computer that one plus one equals three. And 100% of the time, when that computer does that calculation, it'll turn out three, even though one plus one does not equal three. Humans are very similar. We condition humans to think that something is true, and especially during the earlier years, like when our brains are forming, and our young people in our societies can be conditioned that way to think. And that's why I'm such a proponent of having good, solid conversations with people who are younger and not necessarily say, you're wrong. How about this? And can we think about it this way, et cetera, et cetera, that I think is so critical. But bringing in the parents and getting them on side with that type of an approach, along with the teachers and the teaching society and the students, I think is a really critical and have the business community support that, which they absolutely would love to do, I think there's a magic combination in there of actually getting out of those silos and getting them actually in working together because so many of the things are very similar. Wayne, you've brought up a number of points there. I'm actually having a tough time deciding which way I'm going to go with it. It's so apropos for what we're doing in education right now. You talk about that idea of internal stress. And one of the things that I think is really positive with where we are in, in, in education right now is that idea of really valuing each of our learners for who they are and helping them value themselves, that we acknowledge that they all come from different backgrounds, different races and different cultures and different language groups, different experiences, different socioeconomic levels. And we try to really focus on making sure they know who they are and have an opportunity to be discovering who they are and be really proud of that. And then we move on to kind of that interaction where you talked about that as well, of that humanity part where how do they interact with others and how do they value others? And I hadn't heard it described as internal stress when those things are not lined up properly. And so what we're doing in education now, I think, is really trying to deal with that internal stress so that children if we decrease the internal stress that they're having, there's more of a readiness to learn and openness to learn. And so, yeah, some of the things that you were saying as far as what you've done with your studies and what you're trying to do in business, very parallel to what we're trying to do in education. Absolutely. It's humans working with humans and humans working in a, within a hierarchical environment with different 
groups needing to work together. It's a different dynamic, but it's still humans and how we think. And we can learn from the, by bringing in some of the ideations from the different groups, for sure. Exactly. Based on what you've seen out in the business world with this push towards thinking about culture and thinking about um, wellness and well-being and, and resilience, how can educators create a learning environment in their classrooms or in their schools or in their school systems that helps students to develop resilience and stronger well-being? What are some of the parallels that you would have seen? I think the first step is to get broad acceptance of this conceptually and to break some of the cognitive biases that are there that have been built into a system. We've got a lot of people who are very open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. And we've got a lot of people who are very structured and unopen to change. And the education system is an interesting one because the average length of tenure and career is longer than in the business world. In the business world, you go around to different ones. In the educational world, you tend to be there. And the longer you're there, the farther up the hierarchy you go. But not necessarily is everyone adopting and open to new ideations, right? Unfortunately, a lot of programs that are being taught today were developed 25 years ago or 20 years ago in a lot of cases without not necessarily being shifted. And then also to create a more collaborative approach. Because what we learned in the business side is, and I think I mentioned earlier, rather than invite people to answer a survey or share a couple of ideas, we invite people to help co-create the future together. So to get out to the parents and say, hey, we want to help co-create the future of education together um, or within our environment or how we word it, and then get the parents engaged as well as the instructors engaged in the process, as well as the students at different levels, right? I mean, the very young ones, difficult to kind of completely do that. But certainly at once they hit even grade five, grade six, they, they could be engaged in the process and what it means to them and how it happens. And being able to create that kind of open collaborative approach it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to just go with the, what most people think, but what it does is it gives us new ideations on it. I think it's a really interesting parallel. Certainly the UN General Assembly that took place in September this year, there was a focus on education that was transforming its education. Where will we be? And this idea of, you know, you talked about it as well, bringing parents and educators and business people together to talk about what that co-creation can look like is a really positive, open possibility. And I think what would be really reassuring for parents is to be able to hear the business leaders talking about how that's the shift that's happening in business. So when their children are leaving K-12 to and leaving post-secondary, that the parents have a better understanding that the business world that they will live in from 20 to 65 or 70 is also that learning doesn't stop there. And that, that look at culture and resilience and well-being is something that businesses are investing in as well. So it's not two different stages. It's actually a continuation right from kindergarten until uh, when they're, they're finished their work experience. So I think that's reassuring to parents. And I think it would be a great boost for educators to know that there was those conversations that were happening. Oh, absolutely. And at the end of the day, the simplicity of it is, how do we get out in front of it rather than just react to it and treat it? Because we tend to be a treat society. You're sick, here's your drugs. Uh, you know, the doctor will prescribe something. How do we get out in front of some of the mental health and well-being rather than the environment where right now somebody is that way, we'll treat them for, right? 
and helping to understand that the change and adoption of something new is really critical to it. And um, we can and we need to do that. We really do. You know, with our younger people now to be as disconnected from others, the Gen Zs are really the first ones to be completely mobile based and have that kind of an environment. You know, some of the well-being and wellness issues we're seeing with them is way more significant than the other generations because they haven't necessarily been able to have the same kind of connections that so many of us had growing up. How do we work with that? There's no easy answer to that. But I think engaging large numbers of people in a co-creation approach will help us to do what's right where it's right, but also to get people buying into and supporting that kind of a change or that kind of a shift that could be done. There's ways of doing that. You know, it's uh, we've done so many different projects. And one other key point, and just what we're going through, is that we've used our analytic to actually measure the output of certain disciplines. And we did a huge study with uh, universities that produce nurses in North America, predominantly U.S., and we took all the skills that the nurses were supposed to graduate with from university, and we went out to the hospitals and long-term care facilities and things, and we used our algorithm. We asked how frequently, so rather than, this is an important factor, how frequently do you want to see the skill demonstrated by a new grad? How frequently are you seeing it demonstrated? And we looked at the gap between the two. And a lot of them were in the 60s and early 70s percent of expectation. So we were turning out students, putting them into a very difficult environment from the universities. They were not properly trained to deal with that. That's why so much of the stress, mental health and well-being components came out of that. You know that, and, and a lot of them said they brought it with them because as they were going through their learning, it was contradictory in some cases to what they were experiencing before they actually got the full-time job. So we need to look at our education system sometimes too and say, hey, what do we need to adjust here? And how do we do things differently from that perspective, right? So it's multifaceted. There's many different components that need to be brought together and not stuck in these silos. I love the idea, Wayne, of being proactive. And um, yeah, hopefully these conversations help to inspire people to have those conversations. Just before we finish up, Wayne, let's talk a, a little bit about next steps. What are you seeing on the horizon in terms of the business world and a focus on culture, wellness, and resilience? Where are we going to go from here? What are you seeing? It's an interesting question, and I don't mean to dodge it because I don't think there's one answer to that. I think that there's, um, there's going to be early adopters, and different industry sectors have different requirements. And I think the big opportunity and what I think is going to be a major focus now is accepting that there are unique environments within our environments. You know, accepting the fact that in our organization, we've got 20 different divisions. Each division is going to potentially have its own culture. And as long as we enable the people within that to create an optimal one, then we're going to be better off. And I think our education systems need to take a similar look by stepping back and looking at it and saying, okay, what is it? And where is it different and unique? Because we don't have to have one size fits all because as a human society, we are very different in different environments and the cultures are very different in different places. And people are brought up into those cultures. And I think being able to adopt and accept the fact that we can do this together, it is an evolution of communication that is far beyond our typical hierarchical approaches to society. Then I think that's where the businesses are going to go that are going to really be successful moving forward. And that's going to attract the kind of talent that they need because of the talent shortage right now, because 
the choices that people have. And, and our younger people are looking for that kind of a thing. And I think they're bringing a way of thinking that we need to look at. You're young and you're wrong. It's, hey, you're bringing a fresh idea to it. So how do we adopt it and get excited about that as well as look at experience and get excited about that? And what is the right combination of us kind of working together towards something that's incredibly powerful as we're moving forward? I think we're trying to do that in education as well. We want to make sure that everyone's talking. There's some common desires to go towards thinking about culture and well-being and resilience, but we want to really honor the fact that every school has a completely different culture and a very different context, and that we have to make sure that we give the people within, the students, the teachers, the leadership, the parent community, the, the broader community, the opportunity to really do it the way that they need to do it that makes sense for their particular context. And it sounds like you're doing a little bit of that in the business world as well. Oh, I agree with you completely. And I, I think there's such an incredible opportunity of bringing that together and uh, the impact it could have on and not just the well-being, but the quality of education and, and having people uh, really connected from a community perspective. Again, I think it's incredibly powerful. You bring new ways of thinking along with some traditional values, and that traditional may not be the quite word, but human values. And we've got a combination. It could be just so powerful. Well said, Wayne, for sure. Last comment, and just uh, over to you. You've done some incredible work, as the listeners can certainly tell, over your career. And you've got a new project that's coming up, working with the New York Times number one bestseller, John King, the author John King, who wrote Tribal Leadership, a book very much looking at cultures and how people work together within a community. Tell us a little bit about that project that's coming up. Yeah, it, well, it was fascinating. We were introduced by a common friend a few years ago, and it was a New York Times number one bestseller, as you're saying. And it's considered one of the books that actually triggered a lot of the culture conversations that we're having right now with a lot of people and incredible work. And, and John really simplified it. And he was in the uh, entertainment world in, in California. He was a dancer, and he trained others to do that kind of work and adapted in the synthesizing of different skills to make an incredible movie, to create a great presentation, whatever it happened to be. And then you started to apply that to the human side, which is the business world predominantly, and in the training in that particular area. And he developed his five-point model. It was so fascinating. Uh, and its simplicity in terms of the different, what he calls the five stages, right? And, and, and it was really fascinating to me. And then John and I were introduced to each other, and we immediately hit it off. And both of us work with, and we both work what we call triadic modeling because triads stabilize things, right? And then if you look at financial outcomes and operating outcomes are sort of two legs. And most companies and educational systems and everything else work on the two, and then that's a wobbly two-legged stool. And both of us say, well, the human side is the third leg, but it's very difficult, has been very difficult to have ongoing measurements within the human side that help stabilize that wheel. So that's a triad that we both agreed on. But one of the key areas that really hit us was both of us had exactly the same triad, slightly different, but almost exactly the same before we even met. And that was the three areas of being able to process information. And the first one was align, get people aligned around a common outcome, because alignment is not necessarily agreement. We don't have to agree on how we're going to do it, but we are aligned around a common outcome. And you look at like US politics right now. The Democrat and Republican parties are actually aligned around a common outcome, which is a better society for all, right? Kind of in, in very general terms. So alignment is first, then design your action plan and your process. 
So now that we're aligned around a common outcome, then we can talk through the differences and appreciate. And it's not, I'm right, you're wrong. It's, we're different. Let's talk, you know, that kind of approach. So that it's align, design, and then refine. Because nothing ever works out the way it's supposed to. So how do we adjust and continually change it? But the issues are the business world and the educational world. We design our program. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, what's the new plan? Okay, well, that didn't work. What's the new plan? We don't get into a process. As humans, we do, but we don't as organizations and interactions. So align, design, refine. And that's what brought us together in that whole thing. So John asked me a, a few years ago to write the follow-up with him. And, um, and that's what we're doing right now. And we're looking at having it uh, published in the first, I say quarter, but you know, writing takes a lot longer than you think. So we're looking at the first half of uh, 2023 to have it published. And it's all about possibilities thinking. And we're inviting uh, stories of people that use more of the triadic modeling in their systems to share and help co-author with us. So I think there's some, probably some incredible stories that could come out of the educational world that we could fit into some of our production in this area as well. Wouldn't that be fun, Wayne, to have a book that comes out that talks about a possible leadership framework that actually collects stories from different sectors, so public and private and education and business so that's our whole plan, right? We haven't landed on the, the final name for it, but tribal leadership, it could be possibilities leadership, you know, as we go through. And the initial one creates a framework and brings in some stories, but then what we're planning on doing is inviting in stories. And then we could produce secondary and tertiary. And I see possibilities leadership in education as a series of stories of when that type of thing was adopted. And we could talk about the aligned design refined process that goes on, not sugarcoat it. You know, here's where we failed or here's what didn't work and here's how we adjusted to it. Here's the learnings we had. Those types of stories are the ones that really can enable positive change. And, and that's a part of our vision on how this is going to move forward. So, so excited about it. And the people I've met that have these incredible stories, it's just almost overwhelming sometimes. Really fun, Wayne. And I think leaders, and I'm assuming it's in the business world as well, but I know education leaders, we love to read about stories. We love to hear leadership stories that do go into the bumps along the way because it's never a clear path. And hearing about the ups and the downs, it just helps us reflect on our own practice and think about and be positive about trying new things in the future. Yeah, the data and the measurements can help break the stuck thinking, and then the stories help make it real. That's why organizations, they have stories and of people doing things, but they also have measurements on outcomes. And we always need the two of them as humans to make things work well. How do we measure this kind of thing? It's always a story. So being able to bring the two together, the art and the science, is really a, a credible opportunity. So it's uh, very exciting. I love the combination of that. And I am sure our listeners are going to want to see and hear more about this, Wayne. We look forward to inviting you and potentially John in the future to a potentially live roundtable where we can bring in educators, we could bring in business people and really can hold a really interesting conversation. That would be really fun in the future. I would absolutely appreciate that opportunity. And it's such an incredible honor to talk with other people who kind of see this new future that we could have the way you do and the way that your podcast and your focus is. And it, it could be frustrating sometimes, but at the same time, it just brings out so many new ideations and things. And once people listen and think and become a part of it and open up to that, it's amazing what we can accomplish. Wayne, on behalf of the listeners, thank you so much for sharing your work with us, and we look forward to reconnecting in the future. Thank you for your great work. 
Thanks to Wayne for sharing his unique perspective on how to focus on and measure wellness and resilience in organizations as diverse as business and education. His work on leadership development, defining the business case for humanity, has applications in K-12 as well. It's reassuring to educators to know that leaders in the business community also see the value of a focus on well-being, one that begins in our schools and continues in progressive workplaces. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in our podcast with Christine Greco, HR Vice President for Harlequin North America, called The Skills Our Students Need for Today's Workplace. You can find it on the Signature Leadership by Knowledge Hook portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.